Hello, and welcome to Worst Church Ever, the world's worst spiritual community slash progressive Christian podcast. We're that quiet kid from Bible study, you know, the weird one. And in terms of hipness and righteous elocution, we have zero aspirations, a complete lack of urgency, and what our fundamentalist neighbor calls a lukewarm level of commitment. We love to tell good stories, don't claim to know our theme and glory, really that's not for us to say, and we listen to Oasis. We like the way they swaggered and sneered the devil back to hell. We don't believe in hell, by the way, at least not the one where our neighbor thinks most of us are going. Imagine God being that angry. Imagine God being so damn small. This is episode three, Every New Beginning. Now, this will probably be part one of a two or three part podcast looking at the first uh, or in second chapter of Genesis. Today, we're going to start our exploration of the narrative lectionary. And as we record this episode, it's May 2021, but we'll be starting with the readings for this coming September. First, a bit of housekeeping. I misspoke at least once on each of the first two pods. In episode one, I referred to God as He. And I usually try to refer to God as God. In the second episode, I used the word mankind, where I'd intended to use the word humankind. I believe, Lord, help us thou, my old still dying habits. If you'd like to support the podcast, there are links on Spotify and Anchor.fm to do just that. We're not above putting out the tip jar. In clear violation of one or more commandments, we covet your like, your follow, your five-star rating, or whatever. But also not because, okay, that's gross. But also it helps more people know that we're the worst. Back to the heart of the matter for today, and is it just me, or is every part of that song the hook? Don Henley, handsome, handsome genius. He drums, he sings, he rocks every hairdo under heaven with tall Texan aplomb. I'm not sure how that register comes out of that long neck bottle, but we're all the better for it. Twists and turns, diversions, just one of the many public services Worst Church Ever gives back to the community. My recording area, I dare not call it a studio, is full of landmines comprised basically of my children's iPods with random reminders and alarms. Now that they're back in school in person, they've left these things behind for me to discover and to be startled by. So whether it's dogs barking in the background, the humming of the neighbor's lawnmower, or my children's unnecessary at this point iPad alarms and alerts, Every now and then we have another kind of diversion, but that's okay because we're the worst. Now, I was saying that uh, Don Henley was a tall drink of water. Speaking of the Southwest, which is where he's from, how crazy is it that the code name for the first nuclear test was Trinity, 22 kilotons of TNT equivalent. God only knows how long we'll all shine on like crazy cancer diamonds. Every bit of twisted steel makes its contribution. Everyone born downstream of Los Alamos, Nagasaki, Hiroshima are children of the atom. That's not just some cool turn of phrase Stan Lee used to launch the X-Men. Everyone born downstream of Francis Bacon, Thomas Hobbes, are children of the same kind of revolution. We've got all the good things Neil Young talks about in Free World, but I'd also add things like pasteurized milk, modern medicine, and yes, friends, vaccinations. But it's a tricksy little hobbit because its repercussions hum on in the background and the forefront of our lives. And we seldom pay any mind to the fact that the scientific revolution fundamentally changed the baseline way we think and interact about all kinds of things, not just empirical sciences. My wife won me over when she called me empirically good-looking, even though we both know that's a subjective opinion heavily influenced by pheromones and her penchant for seeing good in people. 
The point is I'm good looking depending on your point of view. The point is she has chronically bad vision. The point is it doesn't matter. When you're in love, in love, and you don't care who knows it, everything is clear and true and real, even though it isn't, even though we're hiding, even though we're scared, even though we're lying, even though we know it. We're lying if we think we come to sacred texts, traditions, whatever, without frames and lenses we inherit. If we say we don't, by default, read most of history's influential texts without realizing, we are almost always processing and synthesizing their contents with little knowledge of their social, literary, historical, or religious settings. One word for you, Mr. Braddock, Mr. Bailey, and that word is context. Disregard for context is how most rumors start, and so we come to the texts of the Bible through any number of lenses we carry but haven't crafted. The Reformation's proto-modern insistence on sola scriptura, proper and moral convictions about freedom of conscience, the rise of American fundamentalism and literalism, the unfamiliarity of many baptized and confirmed Christians with the contours of their own religious canon, the use, usually the misuse, of scripture as scientific and sociological proof text. We come to the reading of all texts with our own history, our own biases, and our own baggage, all of which are plugged into a Marshall stack when we're dealing with the dozens of traditions that have coalesced as what we call the Bible. So we are wise then to ask what this collection of writings has to do with us. My own suspicion, hunch, something that seems right to me in the Holy Spirit, is that so much of what most of us, myself included, claim to know or understand about the Bible comes from an accretion of bad scholarship, dogmatic agendas, and overestimations of our own abilities to discern the experiences and observations of the people of a more primal age, people who, by definition, lived closer to the land, to the cycles of nature, and perhaps to the rhythms of the holy. One of the things that makes us the worst church ever is our desire to take those people seriously and on their own terms, not ours. After centuries of misuse, they deserve that much. And we, too, deserve a better understanding of these texts, especially the ones that have shaped so much of human history. We deserve to let ourselves go where the scholarship and the spirit take us, don't you think? So with that in mind, we turn to what the narrative lectionary has sketched out for us starting with the readings for this coming fall 2021. As we said last time, it makes sense to start at the beginning, but which beginning? Even Genesis has two, count them, two stories of creation. For this cycle, the narrative lectionary starts us at the second creation story, Genesis 2 verses 4 through 7 to start. Scholars tend to think that this version of the story comes from the so-called Yahwist tradition, referred to as the J source, or if you like, the J community or J tradition. J comes from the German word for Yahweh, Yahweh, you might recall, is the name God reveals to Moses when Moses asks the burning bush, Who shall I tell them sent me? God reveals God's self to Moses as the God of his fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and also as Yahweh, which is a form of the verb to be, specifically I am, or I am that I am, or I am what I will be. Personally, I like the idea that the name of God is hard to pin down and that even the tenses seem to be phasing in and out right before us, that seems to capture, perhaps the wrong word, something about God's eternal nature, something about the way God can't really be contained in our words and categories. There are some people, probably many, who think that a more faithful, traditional way of understanding Scripture is to defend the belief that Genesis and the rest of the first five books of the Bible were written by Moses himself under direct 
inspiration from God. Of course, the Bible itself doesn't actually make that explicit claim. Most likely, the Hebrew scriptures as we have them were the work of many hands over many centuries. Modern scholarship has sought to identify some of those hands, not as individual people we can name, but as anonymous scribes and priests and their respective schools of thought, their religious experience, the settings that they had in history, and their priorities. Most ancient texts in what we call the ancient Near East were produced in this fashion, as far as we can tell. In the Hebrew scriptures, the J source or the J tradition seems to be the one that uses the name Yahweh for God long before the revelation of that name to Moses. Another source or school which scholars, which scholars call E uses another word for God, Elohim, and we see evidence of both traditions in the creation stories and indeed throughout the Hebrew Bible. There seems also to be a source primarily interested in ritual and worship, and that's been called the priestly source, or P for short. D, which stands for Deuteronomist, is thought to have been behind the writing or compilation of the book of Deuteronomy and much of the Deuto... Oh, that's a hard word even for someone who's been to seminary. Deuteronomical? Deuteronomical. I'm kidding. Deuteronomical. Deuteronomical history. Joshua, Judges, and so on. Deuteronomical. To be clear, the four-source approach to the Hebrew scriptures is not some grand unified theory about which all scholars agree or maybe I should say upon which all scholars agree. Either way, they don't. Biblical scholarship, like all scholarship, continues to evolve with new insights about ancient life, linguistics, and literary traditions. You don't have to believe in J-E-P-D any more than you have to believe that Moses wrote the first five books, and I suppose that's my point. For my money, from my perspective, I prefer the idea that Scripture represents a manifold witness, also the name of a book by John Frankie, and it's a witness of different people working to come to terms with their experiences of God over generations, ages, eons. And now for the text. First, Genesis 2, verses 4 through 7 reads, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth, and no herb of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one to till the ground. But a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now, that was in English. I think that's the New Revised Standard Version. Um, I, what you need to know is that every time you see the word Lord, in Hebrew scripture, in the English rendering of Hebrew scripture. And that word Lord is uh, all capital letters, but sort of smaller than the text around it. That word Lord is actually not Lord in the original Hebrew. That word is actually Yahweh or in other translations, Adonai. So what's going on with that? Well, the word Yahweh, the name Yahweh, became considered to be too holy to speak and eventually uh, even too holy to write or probably more likely uh, too holy to to type or to print in manuscripts because of the fear that somebody would then go ahead and read it out loud. Uh, it was human beings were considered, um, you know, too sinful. The name is too holy. It's too special. It's too set apart. We ought not say it. Um, and the Hebrew tradition it has no vowels. So uh, in English, Yahweh, which was which is has no vowels in Hebrew, got transliterated over the years into Jehovah. 
um, keeping the same consonants, but adding the suspected vowels. So that's where the name for God, Jehovah, comes from. But when you see it in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures, when you see the word Lord in all caps, that really means Yahweh. Uh, and then it was then later on translated or, I guess, written as the word Adonai, which is Hebrew for Lord, the way we think of the word Lord. So when you see Lord, all caps, it's Yahweh, which makes the reading of this section sound like this. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In that day, Yahweh Elohim, so I took the word Lord and translated it back to its original Yahweh, and then Elohim, which was the word for God, or a word for the word God. In that day, the Lord, in that day, Yahweh Elohim made the earth and the heavens when no plant of the field was yet in the earth and no herb of the field had yet sprung up. For Yahweh Elohim had not caused it to rain upon the earth and there was no one to till the ground. But a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole face of the ground. Then Yahweh Elohim formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So this account seems to reflect the hand of the Yahwist, both because of the preferred name for God, Yahweh Elohim, that is Yahweh God or Yahweh comma God or Yahweh who is God, and because of God, Yahweh's hands-on approach to creation. The creation accounts in Genesis 1 refer to God only as Elohim, uh, and they show God working at a cosmic scale and in some ways from a cosmic distance. In these roles, God creates not through dirty anthropomorphic hands, which, by the way, is an image as a Christian I rather like, but instead through speech, which is also an image as a Christian I rather like. Christian tradition will pick up on both of these accounts, especially in terms of Jesus as God among us in flesh and blood, a hands-on healer, and also as Jesus as the Logos, the Word of God through which all things are made, the second person of the Trinity, the content, if you like, of God's total self-giving self-revelation. But that's at least a hundred episodes from now. Suffice it to say, Jesus is also capable of holy action at a distance, and rather than view these different lenses as a weakness in Scripture, to be steamrolled over with fancy systematic theology and acrobatics, I prefer to pair them like the portions of a meal. And here, I'm in good company. The images and symbols of physical and spiritual nourishment are everywhere in Scripture and everywhere in Jewish and Christian practice. This seems like a good place for a break for now. We've talked about the differences in source material and the communities, uh, a little bit about the communities or people that may have produced those original sources. And we've talked about the way that when you look at Scripture, especially the Hebrew Scripture, you need to be aware of the words that are being used and the characteristics of God that are being uh, highlighted. Those seem to be evidence for scholars of different sources, different traditions that are coming together uh, to form sort of one stream of witness from manifold many sources. Um, we are not trying to buff out the edges and make everything fit together. What I'm interested in is seeing where these folks were in their story, in their understanding of that story, and the understanding that they had of where they were in God's story and where God was in their story, in their life, in their setting. So I like the fact that we have these different ways of looking at God and talking about God, and that they're uh, recounted for us in something that has become, for millions of people, something like a canon of sacred scripture. There are two more sections of this reading from Genesis 
um, that we're going to look at in the context of this week's narrative lectionary. And we've already done a lot in a little bit of time. Now, a lot of it was jokes about Don Henley, but we started to get into the nitty-gritty of looking at the text closely. Next time, we'll look at Genesis 2, 15 through 17, and 3 through 8, though we may find ourselves slowed down a bit by looking at some things the narrative lectionary leaves out, namely the creation of Eve. All that and more next time at Worst Church Ever. Thank you. <laughs>